Father in heaven, by your spirit, through the word, send out your light and truth and let them lead us. Let them bring us to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then we will come to the cross of Christ, to the Son of God, our exceeding joy, and will praise you, O triune God, our God. Hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We want to read together from verses 21 to 26. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly what the Lord has to say about uh, anger and murder. And use that as our text as we consider together the sixth commandment. And so Matthew chapter 5, beginning our reading at verse 21 and reading through verse 26. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Thus far the teaching of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we've come to consider what's obviously a very important command. All the commandments are important, but particularly this command that the Lord gives regarding life is one that people particularly need to hear, um, that we be reminded that God sets a high value on the life that he's created. Um, it's very important that we be able to assert these things and be able to assert them from a biblical point of view to rightly understand the value of life that God sets um, and why life is so valuable. Um, in one sense, it should be a no-brainer to us that life is valuable. Um, there, are, there are many reasons we could say that. There are particularly natural reasons uh, to say that lives are of great value. The first thing we know in Genesis is that God made human life in order to reflect his image. Um, and so all, all people who are living are image bearers of God. They are made in his image. They are made in his likeness. There is something of him in them. Um, and, and just by virtue of that, their lives have value um, as image bearers of God. Um, it, in another sense, for a natural reason, it should be a no-brainer that life has value because we are all of the same race. Um, we are all born of the human race in the, in the sense that we are all descended from the same parents, and so we're all really related to one another. Um, to harm one another is to harm people in our family um, who are really closely related to us. Um, and so we, we understand that about um, about ourselves and about the world in which we live. So there are, there are natural reasons to, to value life highly. Um, there are spiritual reasons to value lives that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Everyone who's been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ has been purchased with his blood. 
And he reminds us as we go out into the world that we're not our own, uh, that we've been purchased and we've been purchased at a great cost, not with gold or silver, but with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a great spiritual reason, especially towards Christians, uh, to value their lives. Um, And not just that we have been redeemed by his blood, but we've been united to our Savior, right? That we are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that, that same passage that reminds us that we've been purchased by Christ, that we belong to Christ, also reminds us that what, what is done to us is done to him. That's how closely we are related to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are part of his body. That we have been brought together. And so there are all kinds of reasons to value life. And you might have said, well, I didn't need to come back to church to hear all this. This is sort of first day stuff. I knew that already. Did I really need to come back and be reminded of these things? Well, we do need to be reminded of these things because, of course, this is not the way the world thinks about life. Um, This is not the way the world looks at life. Um, You know, if you say we're all of the same people, um, people will laugh at you and say, no, we're not. We're all, you know, sort of we evolved into this state. Um, That has a profound impact on how you view human life, if that's where you believe life came from. If you believe it came about as as an accident of nature, that's how it can be treated, um, to, to be accorded no more dignity than any other accident of nature. Um, and so we need to affirm those things so that we, we put the right value on it and not allow it to be devalued. It can be devalued because of the way people have uh, science or philosophy on their minds about human life. It can be, deva- it can be devalued by spiritual convictions people have. Um, one of the, the spiritual convictions of Islam is that infidels' lives are not worth as much as believers' lives. Um, and, and that's how they justify some of the atrocities that are done in the name of Islam. That, that is often part of the radicalization process to try to convince people that infidels' lives are not worth as much. Um, And whatever form this has taken on in history, whether it's been political, whether it's been scientific, whether it's been spiritual in some kind of false religion, or whether it's been a a political philosophy like the Nazis had, that there are some lives that are just not worthy of life and worthy to be taken. This, This idea that there's value and dignity in life has always been under attack in this world. And it sort of makes sense. Because Satan hates God. And he knows that he can't really do anything to God. And so what does he attack instead? He attacks the image of God. Um, he attacks what he can get his hands around. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised that Satan tries to devalue life and that God wants it held high. And the sixth commandment teaches us the value that God puts on life and how that life is to be treated um, and so really in, in, the, in the word as we've read it and as summarized in the catechism, we can see that God has really two things he wants to say in regard to this commandment. First, that he pro- prohibits all that tends to the destruction of life. Uh, not just actual murder, but also the root of murder, as we'll see. God prohibits all that tends to the destruction of life. And also that God promotes all that preserves life and health in ourselves and in others. 
So that's, that's how we want to think about what Jesus says and as, as we have it summarized in the catechism. God prohibits all that tends to the destruction of life and promotes all that preserves the life and health of ourselves and our neighbors. Um, God prohibits all that destroys life. We saw that when we read question 105 of the catechism. Um, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? That I am not to belittle hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or my gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be a party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. Um, This is expanding on all the ways in which the human heart can contrive to murder. Um, we, we can murder by deeds, we can murder in other ways, we are often motivated by a sense of revenge in these things. Um, we can be party to murder or we can be party to it in other people. Um, we, we, can, we can excuse our conduct like, like King David did and say, well, I'm not really murdering him, but I will send him into the fiercest part of the fighting, knowing that he's going to die. When David sent Uriah the Hittite to die, in the battle, so that he could have his wife. Right? He didn't kill him, but he sent him out into the fiercest part of the battle. That was being a party to his murder. And that was the accusation that came against David, that he was a murderer uh, for being party to that. And God knows the human heart, right? He knows that we'll seek for any kind of wiggle room in this command, and he's not going to give it to us. And Jesus is very clear about that in his teaching, uh, to cut off any excuse Um, God is teaching us something here in what Jesus says in Matthew 5 about the anatomy of murder. That murder doesn't start with actual deeds. It starts before that. Um, We we see that in the first murder that's ever committed that's recorded in Scripture, in in Cain murdering his brother Abel. Um, We see the anatomy of murder that's spelled out for us in in the catechism playing out in their interactions with one another. Uh, you may remember the story that Cain and Abel bro- both bring offerings to God, and God accepts Abel's offering, and God does not accept Cain's offering. And we're told in Genesis 4 that Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Uh, notice, notice there, what, what do we have recorded for us? How he thought, and his gestures, his look. His face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The anatomy of murder is clearly spelled out there. It began with his anger. It translated to his gestures, his looks. It caused him to speak to his brother and lure him out that he might kill him. And it ended with the actual murder of his brother. Um, God is teaching us something about the anatomy of how murder works. That it doesn't just come out in the deed. It comes out in the thoughts and the looks and the gestures before it becomes actual murder. And that's why God says all of it has to be put aside. None of it can be tolerated. All of it is a, is a violation of the law as he has commanded it. That's what Jesus wants people to understand as well in Matthew 5. It's not just the murder itself. 
It's the root of murder. It's what precedes. God hates all of that because it all tends to the destruction of life. Um, It all tends to the belittling of another person. Um, And that's why the Catechism goes on to make that point explicit that Christ makes explicit in Matthew 5. Does this commandment just relate to the act of murder? And again, no, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness, in God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. We can't let ourselves off the hook because we've not actually killed people. That's what Jesus says. It's it's murder in the heart. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, talking about Jesus' words in Matthew 5, says this, For Jesus to kill with a knife or to engage in character assassination through anger or to belittle another by calling him fool is part and parcel of the same spiritual sickness. Clearly he does not mean that it makes no difference whether we gossip or stab, but he does mean that both activities reveal the same animosity of heart. The root is there even if the deed isn't there. Um, And it ought not to be in anyone. Um, so we're to have a care for what we think of people. Um, we're to have a care not just for our own lives, but for the lives of other people. Um, it's interesting this commandment not just focuses on I can be, I can diminish the value of another person's life, but I can also diminish the value of my own life by the way I behave. Um, my life is not mine to act recklessly with. Um, there's an important part of that command when we, when we read, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Um, sometimes people don't struggle so much with respecting the lives of other people, they struggle with their own lives. Um, we, we know that there's a high rate of people who struggle with suicidal thoughts, suicidal actions and tendencies, um, people who harm themselves. And and one of the things that God wants to remind us is that we are to love our own lives as well. That this extends not just to our neighbor, but also to ourselves. That that suicide is, is in a sense, self-murder. And God wants us to know not that suicide is the unforgivable sin, um, but it's a way of saying God honors your life. God values your life. And you are to value your life. And we know that, that life can become difficult and for a lot of reasons people can begin to entertain these thoughts of harming themselves or even killing themselves and we have to be reminded that the Lord values that life. That the Lord values that life and we're to value it as well. Um, I appreciate that the catechism also talks about being reckless with the life that we've been given. Um, some people feel like their lives are theirs to sort of throw around in whatever risky behavior they want to partake in. And the commandment is reminding us again in a wonderful way, Christians' lives don't belong to themselves. It's not my life to be reckless with. My life is a gift from God. It has value. Um, it's not to be treated as something that doesn't have value. You see how in all these ways God is trying to build us up with this sense of the value that he puts on our lives so that we might value our lives and value the lives of those around us. God valued life enough to make it. God valued life enough to redeem it. 
And God valued life enough to give up his own life for our lives. Right? That's the value that God puts on life. That's the value we see revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why did he give up his life so that we would live? Um, God is a God who loves and cares about life. And his people are to be a people who love and care about life. That's why God forbids anything relating to murder. Uh, The root or the deed itself. We're also reminded in this command, that's why the government has been given the sword. uh, That it might protect life. That's one of the principal tasks of the government. Um, And that's why the government has been given the sword, to protect life. It's a, it's a terrible situation when the government fails to use the sword to protect life. Um, we should be reminded of that. Our government should be reminded of that when they permit the destruction of unborn life. They should be reminded of that when they permit the destruction of lives unjustly in any sense. Um, whether that's the horrible stories we hear of people being gunned down in their own homes by police officers or people being incarcerated who are not guilty. I mean, the, the government is falling down in its duty when it does those things. The government is there to protect life. The government's been given the sword to protect life. And that's, that's an indication of how seriously God takes life, isn't it? That he would give the sword to the, to the state in that way. The state is there, in a sense, to protect life. That's one of its primary functions that God has given to governments. It's a serious failing when they don't stop murder, particularly the murder of innocent life. God prohibits everything that tends to the destruction of human life. And that's how God's people should look at the world. So that we hate everything that promotes, that prohibits, that we should do everything to prohibit the destruction of life. But God also promotes all that preserves the life of ourselves and others. It has a wonderful positive side to this command as well. Um, We see that in question 107. Is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No, by condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. To be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Um, Loving our neighbors as ourselves is a very hard thing to do. We're really good at loving ourselves. That's something we don't have a whole lot of trouble doing. Um, The trick is loving other people as we love ourselves. Seeing the value in them that's there by virtue of their being created in the image of God. Um, by virtue of them existing as creations of a glorious God to show forth his glory. Um, and, and the way that, that scripture prescribes to us always is not just to say, this is what you have to put off. Put off hate, put off a desire for revenge, put these things off. But it also tells us what needs to be put on in its place in order that those things might be driven out. Right, and and if we're gonna if we're gonna drive out hate for our brothers and sisters, what do we have to put on in its place? Love for them. Um, if 
if anger promotes this kind of destruction and separation, then we need to put on those things that make for peace. Um, that we not fly off the handle, but be patient, be peace-loving, be gentle, be merciful, be friendly towards people. And to protect life as much as we can. Um, you know, th- there should never be a, a, a space for Christians to say, well, that person's life is not my problem. That person's life is not my concern. Um, you know, Jesus said that, told that parable about the Good Samaritan to remind us that priests and Levites, in all of their pursuit of religious work and holiness, can pass by the simple duty of tending to someone who's hurt on the, on the side of the street. Um, that, that that's, that's a sign of love and it's a sign of compassion and how we think about other people. And we have to develop that sense. Um, especially in a culture that's increasingly polarized in so many ways. In so many ways that encourages us to think of in terms of us versus them in so many ways. And what God wants us to think about primarily is us having a concern for all. Um, That God is a God like that and he wants people like that who show that kind of attitude towards the world. Um, That we maintain those those precious attitudes towards other people um, and try to live them out in the world. That it's our duty to try to help promote and prevent our neighbor's harm or death. I always think it's an interesting proof text in the catechism uh, for that, that particular comment, doing what we can to protect our neighbor's harm or death, that the proof text is the well-known and well-loved Exodus 23.5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. I'm sure that's a life verse of a lot of people here. Um, but what is, what is the point here? What would be our sinful tendency if we saw someone we hated with his donkey lying down and he can't move it? You know, a lot of us in our sinful nature would say, good, I'm glad you're stuck on the side of the road. Um, you're a jerk and it's what you deserve, right? Um, we, we feel like that as we drive by. Um, But what does God's law say? If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. What do you think that does for someone? What do you think that does for enemies? If, If you stop and help your enemy with the difficulty that he's facing, that you don't leave him with it, but you actually help him. Um, that you see that he's in trouble and you help him, even though he's your enemy. Right? The Lord knows that this is a way that community is fostered. That you do it before you feel it. Right? It doesn't mean you would have the most righteous activity. I can easily see myself as an Israelite if this was in my head, walking by my enemy and going, ow, God makes me do this. I have to do it. And sort of, you know, stomping around and helping him with his donkey and hating every minute of it because I don't like him. Right? Wouldn't it be done from the most righteous of motives? But it probably would have still helped you think better of him and certainly him think better of you. The Lord knows that this fosters community. You act like you love your neighbor until you feel like you love your neighbor. 
C.S. Lewis talked about this in Mere Christianity. Love comes as a command. It's something you do. It's something you act on until you feel it. But sometimes acting on it helps you feel it. Um, maybe if you're helping your, your neighbor with his donkey, right? I'm getting really practical here. You're helping your neighbor with his donkey. And maybe you begin to sympathize with how hard it is to have this problem or where he needs to go and what he needs to do. God knows that this helps to, to foster community, to show good even to our enemies. Um, that there's, there's a blessedness in that. Um, Ursinus put it this way, we do everything in our power to preserve and protect our own as well as the lives of others and so prove ourselves to be a blessing to all. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony of the church and the world if the way we lived our lives was with this principle to be a blessing to all? Uh, to love people and to do these things even to people who don't deserve it, but particularly to our enemies. That's where, really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? It's not just someone who's stuck, it's an enemy who's stuck. And why does God say you help enemies who are stuck too? Because God is a God who helps enemies. Right? That's, that's what Jesus taught also a little later in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's hard to love our enemies. But our motivation is our Father in heaven shows love to his enemies every day. There are people that hate him and oppose him with all their might every day of their lives. And he causes his sun to rise and shine on them. And there are people that are wicked and unjust in everything they do and he causes his rain to fall on them and water them. And when we were his enemies... And when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he sent his son to save us. God is a God who loves his enemies and can do good even to those who hate him. It's not surprising that he expects his people to follow his example, is it? To love those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you. He shows mercy, mercy and patience. Jesus showed mercy and patience. When his enemies were crucifying him, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Uh, this is what God wants us to promote, this kind of view of other people. Uh, to have that view in our own lives and to live that out. Um, so that we, like Stephen, can repeat that act of mercy. That Stephen in his dying says something similar about those who are persecuting him. In Acts 7, um, we're to do good to our enemies because that's what God did to us when we were enemies. And we know how valuable that is to have love shown on us. And so that's what God says life is precious. Life is to be treated as something precious, even in an enemy. 
And we're to try to cultivate with the Spirit's help all of those things that tend to make for peace, not for division and destruction. Um, And so let's ask God's help in that, that we might act the way God acts. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you were willing to show love to us even when we were your enemies. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, we know much more we will be saved by him from the wrath that's coming. We know that for if we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to you by the death of your son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ teaching us the value that you place on life. And we pray that we would be forgiven where we have um, done those things which you hate and been angry and belittled people and cast murderous looks or gestures at people, committed it in our heart even if we didn't commit it with our hands. We pray that you would forgive us. That you would help work in us that love that we should have for our neighbors, even for our enemies. And that you would work in us that that Christ-likeness of being able to look at enemies and to love them and to pray for them. Lord, help us to be more peaceful and patient, uh, to be more gentle with people, to love mercy, um, and to walk humbly with you. Help us in these things, Lord, for we know we can only do them by your Spirit. And would you grant that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.